So when I was growing up, travel baseball was not a thing, especially in southern Delaware. If you played Little League, your goal was to make the all-star team at the end of the season so that you could travel around and, and play. And that's the best that we had. I was fortunate though, so I ended up on some pretty good baseball teams. And one year, and here comes the, the humble brag, are you ready? Are you getting ready? Uh, one year, uh, we were playing a state championship game against a team from upstate Delaware. Now, in order to catch the point of this story, you need to understand something about Southern Delaware. Any of you live in Southern Delaware? Okay, couple, great, thank you, appreciate that. So this will be old news for you. There's some things that you need to know about Southern Delaware. We have great beaches. We've got lots of beautiful landscapes. The people are very nice. Scrapple is a thing. The Apple Scrapple Festival is also a thing. Shout out to Bridgeville, Delaware. But for some reason, and this still confounds me to this day, the residents of Sussex County like to refer to their home as Slower Lower Delaware. It's on stickers, it's on mugs, it's on um, shirts, and it's usually evoked as a badge of honor. I hate it. So that's the background. Are you all caught up? You ready? So we're playing a team from upstate Delaware called Canal. The only things that I remember about this game are, one, I was on a hot streak, another humble brag. I was on a hot streak, and this was the first time I had moved up out of like the batting seven, eight, nine, and I was batting third this game. And I remember their pitcher was massive. It's like my size plus 50 pounds as a 12-year-old. He went on to be drafted by the Detroit Tigers. Uh, so just imagine that as a 12-year-old. He threw really hard. We lost 15 to nothing, okay? Um, I'm still adjusting to that, uh, but I think I'm okay. But here's the thing. In between innings, the fine folks from Canal Little League, they played a bunch of bluegrass or really old country music, and the fans would start dancing, like they got the, the, the feet going and the knees were being slapped, and they were uh, telling us, you know, the emotional 12-year-olds that were playing this baseball game to go back home to slower, lower Delaware. And I still, to this day, cannot stand upstate Delaware. Tim went to Caesar Rodney High School, and it's all I can do just to be friends with, with Tim. We are still working through that in our relationship, but upstate holds a special place in my heart where there's this rivalry between us, and sometimes geography can be a source of division in our perceptions of others, and maybe even in our relationships or lack thereof. A more serious story to reinforce just this one minor point as we get into this teaching a few years ago, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts. It's called This American Life. And they were doing a two-episode series on uh, crime in Chicago and its impact on the education system. And I don't remember a lot of the details on this, but I do remember that they interviewed a bunch of students, and they said that gang violence was so bad that your life was threatened if you walked down the wrong street. You were not initiated into gangs. You were born into them, or you were raised in them, and your membership depended upon where you lived, the street that you lived on. Now, these, these two examples, they're very drastic, but they demonstrate a simple truth. Division is a very real and very tragic part of life. And sometimes the battle lines are drawn according to something inane like geography but they are also regularly drawn based on political affiliation, 
socioeconomic status, race, sexual orientation, religious commitments, history, background, or experience, education, vocation. In many cases, there is a very clear us versus them mentality. And sadly, it's not too different in the church. Even geography at times divides us. A friend of mine, uh, Pastor Martin Hutchison, who ministers at Community of Joy right down the street, uh, invited me to this prayer meeting a few weeks ago. It was for the Safe Streets Initiative and the um, Night Out. I forget what the technical term of that was, but it was this big moment. They were having a prayer service at St. James AME on Mack Avenue. And as I was driving over there, I realized that after living in Salisbury for about five years, I don't think I've ever been on that road. I certainly had never been in that building, worshiping with fellow believers. A similar sad story, um, a few years ago they were having these meetings to figure out what to do with curfew in Salisbury, and the meeting was being held at Cathedral of Love over on Isabella Church Street, and it was my first time over there. Having lived in this area my entire life, sometimes geography divides believers. At other times, though, our division is even more deliberate and intentional. In Christina Cleveland's new book, it's called Disunited in Christ. She talks about how her perception of two classes of people has dominated her thinking. She calls these two classes right Christian and wrong Christian. Right Christian, she observed, reads the same books that she did, appreciates the same style of art and music, frequents the same restaurants and grocery stores, votes for the same political candidates, cares about the same causes and issues, and reads the Bible in a very similar way. Wrong Christian is the complete opposite. And even though they have placed their faith in Jesus, they're viewed with disdain by right Christian. And they are thought to be in need of correction on many different fronts. In most cases, they are not the people at your table or in your sphere of influence because you have done everything you can to cut them out. Obviously, this way of thinking impacts the way that you view others. This is how she concludes this section in her book. She says, there I was, convinced that I was defending Jesus by condemning wrong Christian, when I saw that Jesus was beckoning both right Christian and wrong Christian and inviting us all to know more of his heart. As I read through the Gospels, I noticed that he had a habit of connecting with everybody. Conservative theologians, liberal theologians, prostitutes, divorcees, children, politicians, people who party hard, military servicemen, women, lepers, ethnic minorities, celebrities, you name it, Jesus was pretty serious about connecting in spite of natural and ideological differences. Now, we have just finished a 55-week series on the book of Mark, and I'll be honest, one of my big takeaways was the radical inclusiveness of Jesus. And that doesn't mean he gives people a pass. It doesn't mean that he uh, was uninterested in transformation but I think that Cleveland is right in her assessment. Jesus was very serious about connecting, and even his closest group of followers demonstrates the diversity that he was able to bring together for a common purpose. 
sitting with him at that final meal, we see a zealot, someone who's so anti-government, perhaps seated next to a former tax collector who was the embodiment of government, yet sharing the same meal with Jesus. I'd like us to be serious about connecting with people as well, and oddly, I think a good place to start is connecting with our brothers and sisters in Jesus. It may even be some of the most difficult work that we have to do. In John 17, Jesus prays uh, that we would be one, that we would be united. This is his prayer. It's called the High Priestly Prayer in John 17. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about his disciples at this point and contrasting his prayer for the disciples and now his prayer for more than them. I pray also for those who will believe in me through the message of the disciples, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, perhaps your story is different, but it doesn't seem that we are living this out, this idea of unity. In fact, I think that for many of us, we still live in that framework of right Christian and wrong Christian, and it shows in our relationships or lack thereof. So here's the plan for us over the next few weeks. Uh, What I want to do is spend some time reflecting on what unites us as believers. More specifically, we will spend some time identifying our shared beliefs. I want to be clear. This series is not so much a defense of what we believe. It certainly isn't meant to be a, this is um, the statement of faith of, of TRP and all of its fine details. What we want to address instead are the foundational theological beliefs of the capital C church, not just us, but the church in this area, this church in this country, this church in the world. The statement of faith, if you will, that has served to identify a believer in Jesus since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost very early on. These are the things that unite us together as believers. And to do this, we're going to focus our attention on the theology of the Nicene Creed. That sounds super nerdy. Can I get an amen? Okay, thank you. You don't have to be so excited about affirming that. But we're going to focus our attention on the Nicene Creed. This creed took on various forms from 325 to 381 CE. It's old. And it now stands as one of the most important ecumenical creeds of the Christian church. One scholar says this, The Nicene Creed is recited by all Christian churches, East and West, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, as the definitive expression of the Christian faith. In other words, this describes the core of what Christians all over the world and from different traditions believe to be true. As most creeds are, this one was written in response to the heresies of the day, the early heresies that people were trying to figure out who Jesus was and what he did, and they were fumbling with some of those ideas. So this creed, it's rooted in a particular context, which we're going to explore over the next few weeks, but it's withstood the test of time. On its importance for us, 
One scholar says, I am firmly convinced that Christianity today would be healthier and far more interesting if it actually believed what the creed says and acted in a manner that expressed that belief. Now, as I mentioned, I'm a huge nerd. You guys know that. Normal people don't get PhDs in Old Testament. I actually saw a headline today on my Facebook feed that said, are PhD students irrational? Question mark. The answer in that study was yes. So for those of you that are heading on to uh, further your education, be prepared for that. Um, I love talking about minutia and thinking deeply about theological issues. But catch what this guy is saying here. If we believed what the creed says, if we believed the biblical teachings about who Jesus is, and if we acted in a manner that expressed that belief, this is not just an intellectual exercise. This is not just a moment for us to nerd out on some stuff that was written in the fourth century, even though that'd be pretty awesome. It should lead to transformation. Here's one way that we are hoping that this will happen. In many traditions, the Nicene Creed is incorporated into the flow of worship. It's usually placed between the sermon and communion. As part of their preparation for the receipt of the bread and the wine, the congregation would recite these words together in unison. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, that is Jesus, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, or universal and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. The creed begins with the robust and highly suggestive statement. We believe. Consider this, and we're not going to do this tonight, but in the weeks to come, you might see this happen. When we raise our voices to recite these words, we join a chorus of faithful believers that have gone before us, who have paved the way, who have invited people in as recipients of grace and participants in God's restorative work. And we carry the melody for those who will come after us, for our children and our children's children. Now, here's where it gets really controversial, okay? So stick with me. This chorus, this chorus of people, it includes those who disagree with you on how and when God created the earth. 
It includes people who disagree with you on whether or not the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho or Jonah and the big fish happened just as the Bible says it did. It includes people who disagree with you on when and where and how to baptize. It includes people who disagree with you on whether or not women should preach and teach. It includes people who disagree with you on so many things, but on the essentials on the core truths of the Christian faith, on the non-negotiables. We stand together as one family and we say, we believe. I think that remembering this will help us to move towards unity that we desire, the unity that Jesus longed for and prayed for and hoped for and died and rose again for. There's a really old guy named St. Augustine. He was an early Christian theologian and philosopher in the late 4th and early 5th century. And I heard an anecdote about him recently that when he was preaching, he would put the, the congregation into different segments. He would say things like, now this bit of teaching is for the mature Christians in the room. And then he would launch into something that was really deep and heady. And then he would say, now this bit of teaching is for the heathens in the room. It's kind of crass, but this is, you know, 5th century, so they didn't have good lingo for including people, but then he would go on to like invite folks into the, to the gospel story and he would segment off the room. And I haven't been able to verify this is actually how that happens, but I'm gonna borrow it for a few minutes. So for the mature Christians in the room, the people who have been around church for a long time, the people who have been reading your Bibles and praying consistently, I think that there is something for us in this study of the ancient creed. In particular tonight, what I want you to contemplate, and especially this is poignant, I think, for the college students in the room. Does what you believe impact how you live? More than that, do we act in a manner that expresses our beliefs? These things, for a lot of us, it's like, yeah, I believe in God, and I believe he created, and I believe in Jesus, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that all sounds good, but... Does your life give evidence of that? Do you live in a way that's consistent with that? This morning I was um, filling in, playing some music down the street at Community of Joy. And they do this really neat thing that we've played around with the idea of doing but haven't had the guts to do it. It's, like, it's called talk back time where he'll, he'll preach a sermon and then he'll say, what do you guys think? And it's like open season for anybody to call him on anything. But one, one of his questions that he wanted a response from, a real response from his community was, where did you see God this week? I'm a pastor, right? And I was leading worship this, this morning, and I was sitting on the front row, racking my brain. And I couldn't really allow myself to get there. I know, like, perhaps this is an overshare, but indulge me. Kate and I, our lives are chaotic. We've got two small kids. They're super cute. Uh, but one of them never sleeps. It's his job in, in life to just awake himself every two hours. And we're kind of just zombified and walking through. And his, his commentary this morning was basically, do you allow yourself the opportunity to see God at work in the world around you and in the people that you come into contact with? 
Are we allowing ourselves to see God in action? Are our lives open to God moving? And do the things that we think and say and the ways that we act and the way that we treat people and include and fight for justice, does that demonstrate that we believe this stuff to be true and you can see it? Now, for the people in the room that are on the fence with all of this stuff, I understand that this is very heavy-handed. Here's a big old creed with all the things that we believe. Um, the people in the room that have real doubts and real questions and real issues with regard to faith. First, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being here. I know what it's like to carry burdens with you and to walk in the door and trust people to love you or at least not to mistreat you. But I have a couple of questions that I just want to throw out there for you. Do you feel stifled by the idea of the faith? Do you feel that in order to really commit that you must first sacrifice your intellect? I want to prepare you for something. If you stick around here and if you hear the, the teachings from, from this creed that are so thoroughly uh, inundated and come right from scripture. When I talk about the creed, I don't want you to hear some, some abstract thing. This is like a summary statement, the story of the gospel in a nutshell. If you hear these things, I think you'll be surprised. There's one more quote that I want you to consider from Luke Timothy Johnson. Again, he's a New Testament professor in Emory University down in Atlanta. It says, to be a creedal Christian, and here he's just talking about to be someone who affirms these statements of the faith. To be a creedal Christian is to be a definite Christian. It is also to be a Christian who knows the difference between the non-essential and the essential. And here's where I want you to focus in. It's a Christian who is free to think and to imagine boldly within the strong and inflexible framework of faith and who is open to wisdom from any source, confident that wherever there is truth, it is from God. I used to be a high school teacher. It was a privilege. Those kids stressed me out on a lot of days, but it was, it was awesome getting to know them and to see especially how they're going on with life and some of them are college graduates now and some of them are married and I just feel really old but that's my own stuff that I'll work through at a different time um, when I was a high school teacher I remember so many of them would come to me and say Mr. James I just don't think I can buy into this because I don't I don't read Genesis in a literal way I don't think that God created the world in six 24 hour days and my response to that would always be one of puzzlement because there's lots of Christians that don't read Genesis in that way. And I understand that we're fully in the waters of controversial stuff. That's what you do when you're in those waters. Um, you get uncomfortable. But when you hear the creed, it says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It's succinct but it's also so open. And here, I don't want to like promote one view over the other, but I just want people to see that perhaps the idea of the faith that you have is a construct that has been given to you 
that isn't true? N.T. Wright has this anecdote where he used to be a chaplain at a school and some, some students would show up and say, listen, I'm probably not gonna hang out in your group anymore because I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. And he would say, really? Well, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And the student would go on to list all the different attributes of that God and he would say, I don't believe in that God either. I believe in the God that's revealed in Jesus Christ and let me tell you about him. And it sounds like a, a kind of a trick way to, to get people in, but I think that some folks are dealing with constructs that are limited, their box is perhaps too narrow, and for some of you, you've already identified that this might not be for you, but I wanna encourage you and maybe even challenge you. Don't give up on it yet. Continue to pursue and ask questions and think deeply, and perhaps at the end of that pursuit, you might be surprised. Finally, uh, for the people who are hurting or the people who have been hurt, the people who are anxious or maybe even potentially depressed, the people who are just trying to make it, and you're here hoping to be refreshed in some way with the balm of the gospel. I know full well that a study on the Nicene Creed probably doesn't seem immediately relevant to you. I get that but I would encourage you to hear these words wherever you are and whatever it is that you're going through. When we stand to affirm these truths, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the one who cares for you, the one who is concerned in your, in your life, the one who is an advocate for you, the one who is with you and mourns when you mourn and rejoices when you rejoice. Of Jesus, the creed says, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, he took on flesh, he became one of us, he suffered, he died, he understands what it is that you're going through. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. The creed concludes, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. I believe that there's hope embedded within these statements, and it's a hope that is based on a retelling of the biblical story of redemption. When we relearn, or maybe even when we learn for the first time what we believe, and when we are able to search its richness, we will come away encouraged, amazed, thankful, and expectant. When we see the family of God in its beautiful diversity, and when we realize that each of us, in our brokenness, in our potential depression and stress, in our suffering and our pain, or maybe even in our elation and joy and hope, we sit at the very same table and we share the very same meal as we feast with the very same Savior. Maybe something as simple as hearing over and over and over, not just I believe, but we believe. Maybe something as simple as that confession and all that it connotes is enough of a reminder that you are not alone, that not only is Jesus with you, but we are with you. Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through the message of my disciples that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you 
may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Division be damned. May the process begin with us as we strive for unity around these central beliefs of a good God and a savior who cares and is concerned, fights for us and advocates for us. May we celebrate that when we claim we believe.